one of my most favorite and moving times in this church is this particular day, Commitment Sunday. When you gather to make your vow of commitment to serve this church and to serve God for the coming year, and I'm always moved by the deep sense of faith and spirit that abides here as you come forward. Today you will be asked to do that during communion. If you have not mailed your card in or committed online, you are welcome to come forward with your card and place it in the basket as you receive communion. I want to thank our stewardship committee uh, for the great work they've done this year. It's been my easiest uh, stewardship time, I think, mainly because the people that we asked to do it, most of whom had never done it before. And their enthusiasm and surprise at all we do as a church is sort of uh, filtered through the whole committee. And I hope it's filtered through this whole church, too. If you looked at the pamphlet we handed out or sent out in the, in the uh, mailer, you see all that we do in this church, which is extraordinary. Uh, Dan Wolf has been our chair uh, on the committee where Josh... Brian, Bob Cook, Joe Eberly, Julie Hanley, Lindsey Helms, and Will Newton. And also I want to thank you as a congregation who for a hundred and some years taken this stewardship opportunity seriously to keep this church doing all that it does. I am convinced that it will continue to do so for another hundred years. Finally, I've learned that there's, a little, there's little that a preacher can say during Commitment Sunday that can convince you to increase the amount of money in your giving that you've already decided to give. The die has been cast, but there, is, or there are plenty of things that a preacher can say to convince you not to give on Commitment Sunday and keep your, uh, your commitment cards in your wallets. So God help me that I don't say the last and at least encourage you to do the first. I picked this morning's passage primarily because I think it offers us an enormous opportunity to remember again who we are as a church, a community of faith, and why it is that we are called to do what we do together. Especially in a world today that no longer honors or understands what it means to be connected in relationship, and to be in community, even though we do not always agree. The text comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. It's actually verses 5 through 13. Jesus said to his disciples, came right after they asked him about prayer, teach us to pray like John's disciples pray, and he gives them a scant four verses of a really shortened version of the Lord's Prayer, and then, he, and, and then he gathers them together and he says to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived and I have nothing set before him. In the Bible, all the way through from the Old Testament through the New Testament, the obligation of hospitality for strangers and immigrants, for those on the journey is enormous 
And if one refuses to be hospitable to a stranger, sh- the shame on them is, is meant to be understood corporately. And if the village does not help out someone who is trying to be hospitable to a stranger, the shame is on the village. It's a corporate commitment. And Jesus says to the, in the parable, and he answers, uh, and the friend says, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And Jesus answers from within, which is implying that you would actually, because the Greek is ambiguous, you would actually set this sentence up to follow that says, which one of you would answer from within Which one of you would say, do not bother me. The door has already been locked and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. And the implication is none of you would ever say that. It's assumed you would get up. And who would not get up and give him anything because he is his friend or at least because of his persistence, even if he forgets all that and he can't wake up because he's in slumber, if you just keep knocking, we'll finally hear it and get up. And then he moves to this. Jesus says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find, knock and the door will be open for you. I want a new car. I, I need a parking place at Publix. Ask and it will be given. It's the Holy Spirit he's saying to ask for. The Holy Spirit that brings to us compassion and relationship. Ask and it will be given you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks the door will be opened Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who aren't always good, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. So you know that our mission statement is a movement for reconciliation. You've heard it ad nauseum. Hopefully you'll continue to hear it that way, for that's what we do. That's who we are. That's why we exist. And so you probably looked at your bulletins and thought, well, there's got to be a typo because it reads a movement for e-conciliation. And it's not a typo. In fact, it was a typo originally when... We were sending the letter around that got out that was in the packet for you from the stewardship committee, and I wrote an iteration with a typo on it, meaning to say reconciliation, but it came out econciliation, which I can't figure out to this day because anytime I type econciliation, spell check takes over and puts an R in front of the word. Yet somehow it made it econciliation, and so the whole committee sent back saying, everything looks great except for the typo. But maybe it wasn't. And the reason is because the word for econ in the Bible, as in economy, as in ecology, the word for econ in the Bible is oikos, O-I-K-O-S. And it means household. It means 
dwelling place. It means the place where people, the community, gathers, oikos. The whole world, in fact, is called the oikoimene, the household of God. A a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole oikoimene will be taxed. And a steward, as in stewardship, the keeper of the farm, the manager of the wine, the steward is called an oikonomos, a manager. So our words, as I said, ecology, the study of all the interacting organisms that biologically interact, this systemic organic relationship and how they interact, that's ecology, and the word ecosystem comes from it, so too for the word economy, oikos, the social domain around how we practice material acquisition associated with production and management of resources. Basically, it's about how we manage or steward wealth, economy. The Bible speaks to every condition in every age, yet it is hard for us to understand in our particular culture now why this is important or what it means. This morning's passage is about how we are called to live together in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. You've heard that phrase before. It is about the ecology and the economy of the home place, the village, the community, the dwelling that we have together in the presence of God, energized and inspired by the Spirit of God. In Jesus' day, as I said, the village was responsible to each other. And if a stranger showed up and the home to which he showed up did not have enough provision, the rest of the village would be shamed if they did not step in and help. So you've got care for the, for the man on a journey and you've got care for the man whose house he shows up in, all involved, connected together in this ecological thing. And why it's so hard for us to understand is because in our culture, our American culture, one of the blessings of our culture is that we've grown up with this sort of sense of individual responsibility. De Tocqueville brought this up in the late 19th century when he, a sociologist, traveled around the country and said, America is blessed with this individualism. Each person sort of feels responsible for themselves to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, to do what they need to do by themselves and not so dependent on the larger governmental process. And that's been sort of America's stick. That's one reason that we won two world wars is because of that. But the Tocqueville also warned us and said the very blessing of that will turn into and can turn into a rampant individualism where everyone feels like they are the only one that matters and we are no longer feeling connected to the greater good. Something I think our founding fathers and mothers did not intend. Yet something I am afraid to say we have morphed more and more into as a culture. Losing a sense of civic responsibility, a sense that we are all in this together. 
But the Hebrew notion is that we're all in this as one body of God's creation. And we need this this notion, especially now in our world, that reminds us of the deeper values and virtues of what it means to be together, to share together, to work together. That's what this parable is about. The man asleep wakes up, offers three loaves of bread. If not, the rest of the village pitches in. Interesting to me that this happens right after the disciples talk, talk, ask Jesus to teach us how to pray. And Jesus gives them this terse like four verses as if don't heap word upon word upon word. Like God knows what's going on in your life even before you ask. Just say the Lord's Prayer. And if you read it in Luke, it's not the full Lord's Prayer we say. But what he says then after that is he gives them this parable as if to say, Words are great, but what really matters, if you want to know about prayer, is what do you do with your hands and your feet and your body? Do you invest yourself in your neighbor and your village? Do you help care for other people? That's walking your prayers. That's living your prayers. And I don't think it's any escape that Jesus lifts that parable up for us to understand if you really want to live a life of prayer, do what Jesus does. Care for people. Usually when we talk about how do you deal with economies, you're talking about, like in a binary way, one of two ways. The liberal side tends to say that we need more government to care for those who don't have as much. We need to raise taxes in order to sustain that social caring network. That would be considered the more liberal side. The more conservative side is we need more jobs, we need more industry to give people a, a, work, a place to work where they can build up for themselves and have respect in their work, uh, their own economy. Uh, they won't be dependent on the government. Uh, and, and so you have these sort of two, right, this binary sense of philosophy of how you do the economy. And, and usually the people on the left think the people on the right are greedy and the people on the right think the people on the left are uh, ill-informed or whatever. And it leads to name-calling as we now see in our world today where there is a clear division between those on my side and those who are not. It's us and them. But I want to say that there's a third option. The first option Yes, we need government help. The second option is, yes, we need capital and jobs, both together. But the real third option is what we need more deeply than that is our own commitment for philanthropy. Philos, the word it comes from is love. Love of neighbor, love of mankind, love of humanity And as we become more philanthropic in our giving, you see that's the third option from government spending or capital. The big way we are dependent on each other is in our philanthropy, each and every one of us capable of being that, if not in money, in time, or treasure. And the more we invest that, that we love our neighbor we care for our neighbor, the more godlike we become. And the more godlike we become, the more God 
filled we become. And the more God filled we become, the more joyful we become. That's how you live your prayers. It sounds simple. It's not always easy. What I love about Riverside Presbyterian Church is its continued insistence that we remain a purple church. Blue and red together are purple. Both sides are important. But what's more important is the purple, not the red or the blue. What's more important is that we work together and live together even though we do not agree on these lesser truths of economy. But we agree on the larger truth that we are all children of God, that we are all one together by virtue of the Spirit of God bringing us together. And this is a huge strategic value of importance in our world today that does not have any language for this kind of community anymore. It doesn't understand what it means to work together even though you don't agree. It doesn't know what it means to help each other in this kind of community by virtue of the power of the Spirit of God. That's why it's so important that we continue to support this church year after year, a movement for reconciliation. You get it? That's why it's so important that we continue to be the beacon that we are in this city and this world, working together, because this is God's will for God's world. That we come together and we all become one. That's God's will. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that brings us into communion. And it is the power of darkness and evil that divides us and splits us apart. You may have seen the poll recently where 80% of Americans now say that our language of divisiveness and anger and name-calling precipitates violence. 80% now say that. What surprises me is the 20% who don't. We all know that words matter and that language used that way builds up the kind of reactivity that we've seen lately. The bombing sent to so many two weeks ago, the Tree of Life synagogue, unfathomable, unimaginable evil shooting in Pittsburgh. Last week, according to David Brooks in an article, these shootings all have one common thread. There's always an assault weapon, he says, or a bunch of them. There's always the survivors clutching each other, weeping in in little clumps outside. There's always one other thing, a lonely man. One guy who fell through the cracks of society and lived a solitary life of disappointment and who one day decided to make a blood-drenched leap from insignificance to infamy. Brooks goes on to say such isolation and loneliness drives people like Robert Bowers to extremist ideologies and gives them a sense that they are connected to something at least. Finally, he says, this social isolation is at the root of the derangement of the American mind, 
Killing sprees are just one manifestation of the fact that millions of Americans find themselves isolated and alone. Suicide rates are up 30% in the last 18 years. Listen to this. Those between the ages of 10 and 17, suicide rates have risen 70% in the last 10 years. 45,000 people every year. An additional 60,000 people die every year to drug addiction. Brooks sounds almost apocalyptic. But he keeps going back to the social foundation of community and connection that is so important. The oikos, the village that we live in together, and the loss of this is the root cause of so much of what's happening. We've lost our networks. We've lost our relationships. We've lost our human interactions. We're now alienated and estranged. This, you see, is what we should be afraid of. Not the contrived political machinations of fear that are broadcast all over the airwaves. That's, that's just politics trying to get votes. This is the endemic, systemic problem in our world today, and especially in our country. This is what we should fear, and why it is so important for this church to fight that with all we have, to show the world what it looks like to be one together. Last Monday night, I decided to attend the prayer vigil at Temple Ahaveth Chesed on San Juan, and um, I got there at 6.30, it started at 7, and I had to park six blocks away to find a parking place. And as I got out of my car, I was feeling sort of numb and not knowing what to expect. And as I looked up, I saw people streaming from every little street on every corner, coming this way and coming that way, all moving in mass toward the temple to lift up a prayer and to be together and to show this kind of kingdom of God, spirituality, this kind of amazing power of God to bring us together, even though we were different faiths, Jewish and Muslim and Christian and Hindu and Baha'i and every possible faith, as well as those who didn't even have faith, yet still coming together in this one place. And it struck me. It struck me, I began to cry. I couldn't, I couldn't walk anymore. I just had to stand by my car for tears were flowing down my face because I was so full of gratitude for this moment of reconciliation, of bringing back together the peoples. And, it's, and all I could think of is, this is the kingdom of God. This is what God intends for this world, that we come together like this. The Holy Spirit is the power that brings us together. Evil is the power that splits us apart.